Well, good morning. It is good to meet together in this way again, whether you are with us at the church or whether you are joining us online, it is good to gather and look into God's Word. And this morning we are continuing in our little series on the five ones, which are basically common patterns of Christian behavior and why we do the things we do as Christians. And it's a helpful series to do right now, having just talked about the church and Jesus establishing his church, and also just the reality of the time that we're living in right now. It's been easy to disengage. It's been easy to lose track of the spiritual disciplines. It's been easy to uh, be distracted and to not uh, press in and swim up against the cultural influence of just um, disengaging and not fully participating in the church that Jesus established, but even more importantly, or as importantly, engaged in the relationship that we have with our Father. And so we're looking at these common patterns, five common patterns of Christian behavior and why we do these things that we do. Um, or in other words, how are we reflecting our Christian life? How are we reflecting our life as disciples? And so we've called this series the five ones. Five is easy to remember. Uh, you only need one hand to count them. And it gives us a simple way just to reflect on how we are engaging uh, in our walk with our brothers and sisters and in our walk with the Father. So the five ones are one gathering together for worship, one time for prayer, one group for discipleship, one ministry for service, and one friend for Christ. And of the five, this one that we are looking at today probably stands out as our greatest personal test. And we will get the most telling reflection of what we truly believe in and where we truly stand. There's no better mirror than the mirror of our own personal prayer life. Lots of people can come to church and come to the gathering together and enjoy the music and the encouragement and the social connections and the friendships. They can come to church and enjoy the moral teaching and the coffee and, well, formerly, the homemade snacks. And it really isn't a reflection just coming to church how much they treasure Christ as much as how much they treasure the friendships that they have there and belonging. So it's hard to know for sure whether enthusiastic worship is equivalent to a close relationship with God. And we can say the same things about some of the other ones. We can say the same thing for small groups, even for ministries for service, even for evangelism. We know that people like being liked. I like to be liked. They like being good. So people can embrace friendly, safe, moral community for all the benefits that community gives. But our public embrace of good community doesn't mean that we treasure Christ or submit our lives to God. And so, as the saying begun by D.L. Moody goes, true character is revealed by what you do in the dark. Or, as it's popularly phrased today, your true character is what you do when no one is watching. And so this second discipline of private, secret, one-on-one -on -one time with God in personal prayer is one of the most reflective mirrors we have of where we stand. Because it's in that private time with God that we are only treasuring Him. That there is no other benefit other than God Himself. And sadly, it's too often a scary reflection or an absent one. And I include myself in that too. Even during this time, when you think that we have all this time on our hands to pray, it just has been hard sometimes, some weeks, even some months, to press into God in prayer in a regular way. Maybe I'm the only one, 
but too often my private prayers end up too short or too selfish or too flippant or too reactive to what's going on or just non-existent. So why is private prayer so often so hard, especially when many of us as Christians have enjoyed vibrant prayer lives in the past and we've had those seasons when it seems like we can pray and journal and that we are in communion with God so regularly and then a season comes when it seems so distant. Well, the Puritan Thomas Brooks, writing just about 400 years ago, outlines some of the problems we encounter in personal prayer in a short book, The Secret Key to Heaven. And you can actually pick up The Secret Key to Heaven uh, from Amazon on your Kindle. This is not a promotion of Amazon, but I'm just saying it's $2.99, and that's the best $3 you're going to spend this week. But I'll just touch on four, I think, of our biggest challenges, and then we'll turn to Luke 11, and we'll see how Jesus gives us an answer to his disciples when they ask him about prayer. But let me just pray before we begin examining these barriers to private prayer and why one time of prayer is so important in our Christian walk. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we get to open up your word. We thank you for the reminder that you call us to pray. And Lord, we want to re-engage. We want to press in in prayer, especially. Worship continues. Worship is gathering. Worship is going out online. But in our own personal lives, apart from the gathering, we need this time with you in prayer. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn today the importance of prayer in our Christian walk. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what are some barriers to private prayer? Well, first of all, As Christians, Thomas Brooks acknowledges that in private prayer, we are immediately engaged in a spiritual battle. Or as he phrases it, every secret prayer adds to the devil's torment. I love that. I love the idea that every time Christians are praying, we are tormenting the devil. And so it's no wonder that our enemy uses every means available to discourage us from prayer. Secondly, for a Christian who has been struggling in their habit of prayer, our own flesh can add its resistance to personal prayer in three key ways. We know that, first of all, private prayer exposes private sins. When we pray in public or when we have people pray over us, it's not too hard for us to avoid our own personal secret sins. Public prayer is not the right right place for secret sins to be exposed anyway. And so we can feel comfortable praying for others or praying in general, being prayed over, and count our prayer life complete entirely in public prayer. Or just having people pray over us, say, on a Sunday morning. But if we, as Brooke says, bend our knees alone in our closet and open our heart to God, When then we know we will see ourselves most clearly. Psalm 19.12 says, Who can discern his own errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. So people near us know some of our sin. We know a little more of our sin, and God knows all of our sin. And that can be hard to face when you're out of practice or not near to God for some time. And so our own sinful nature can discourage us from continuing in prayer. Thirdly, private prayer eliminates hypocrisy. For some people, they pray little or not at all in private because there's no social benefit. They're happy to be seen praying or at least at a prayer meeting more than they desire to pray privately themselves. They want the appearance of a prayer life, but not the actual prayer life. Or they enjoy being prayed over, but they have no desire to put the energy into praying for others. And Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Private prayer gets no public reward. And so our flesh sometimes resists spending energy in private prayer because we don't see the immediate benefit of it. There is no social reward. And thirdly, private prayer evokes shame over our silence. This is one of those catch-22s. We don't pray because we have not prayed. And because we have not prayed, we're ashamed to pray. And it's not that we don't have words to use. We have lots of words. We have lots of things that we could come to God with. Ask a fisherman about the best places to fish. Ask a golfer about golf. Ask a grandparent about their grandchildren. Ask me about doctrine. Don't even get me started on superlapsarianism. We all have lots of things to say. We hear each other talking all the time. But then, when we kneel by our bed, or we rest our heads in our hands for a few moments, we are ashamed that we cannot gather our thoughts or our words for the God of the universe. And in our culture today, shame must be avoided at all costs. Shame, we feel, is one of the greatest evils, supposedly, of our age. In the interest of self-esteem, we must at all costs at all costs, never allow ourselves to be ashamed. And if it's improperly placed for shame, that is true. We shouldn't feel improper shame. But shame is an emotion that God has given us for our good to warn us and to prompt us when we are not walking rightly with him. So proper shame, as this would be, if you're feeling ashamed of going to prayer because you haven't been there or don't even know what to say to God, that is a good signal for us to get back on the right path. We need to press into that shame. We need to press into that feeling, knowing that God is good and he wants us there with him. But these are things that can be barriers to our prayer. It's a spiritual battle. It exposes private sin. It is a sign of hypocrisy if we only pray publicly and it evokes shame. And so these things can stop us from wanting to pray. The reasons we don't pray are many. Maybe you've felt some of these. Some of them are superficial and some of them are deep-rooted. And perhaps we don't even realize what is stopping us from prayer, but we need to examine that. The struggle to stay constant in private prayer is real for every Christian. And the struggle is strongest here of the five things that we struggle with exactly because it's the truest and most important thing we can do in order to show who we are really like as disciples of Jesus. So let's now turn to Luke chapter 11. We've considered the reasons of things that keep us from prayer. Let's see what Jesus had to say to his disciples about prayer. And it's just one parable, and that won't answer every question, but we should take this as our encouragement to run daily to God in prayer without shame and without fear and in victory. Let's just see what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. He says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And so he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks, receives, the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what we want to focus on in this parable that Jesus gives the disciples is that it's a parable that he gives right after teaching them a daily pattern of praying. And after giving them a pattern, there was something that Jesus knew would be important for his followers to know, more than the pattern itself, or as much as the pattern itself. See, the pattern is good, the pattern is perfect, but after giving them a three-line pattern, Jesus then gives them 11 more lines of parable to explain the nature of prayer itself. So the pattern is good, but there's something we need to know beyond just the pattern. Now, when you read this with modern ears, it may be hard to understand the story. So suppose you have a friend, and Jesus doesn't mean that sarcastically, you know, the way we would. Suppose you have a friend. I don't believe you have a friend, but suppose you did. No, no, Jesus obviously doesn't mean it that way. He says, suppose you have a friend, and that gives us the context. The story, the parable, is about friends, and that's important. Don't miss that context. We are going to a friend in prayer. He's talking about a relationship that we have with a friend. But this friend of yours has a surprise visitor. Or you have a surprise visitor and, and you need some food. And, for, and that doesn't seem like something we would go na- wake up a neighbor for. But in this culture, you understand contextually, this is very important. Hospitality is one of the highest values um, in the culture at the time. And so it's very important to be hospitable. And secondly, we see it's very late. The house is locked up and the whole family is asleep. And again, to us, culturally, that doesn't seem like a big deal. We would just get a text, and we would sneak out of bed, go get some stuff, give it to them at the front door, no big deal. But you have to realize that in this time, many of the houses, most of the homes, uh, were only a couple of large rooms, and a lot of the family was sleeping together. And so, if you had to go and wake up your neighbor, you were probably waking up the whole room. And when he had got up, he had to disturb all the kids and everybody else. And then he would have to go to the one other room and barge around in the pantry for some food. You're basically getting the whole house up. It's not the same as here in North America uh, or in this time. And so the parable loses some power in the 2,000 years that have passed since the telling of it. But you can imagine that this is an inconvenience. It's a significant inconvenience. So To understand this parable, we have to see that Jesus means it by comparison and by contrast. He's contrasting the normal, nominal goodness of men to the infinite goodness of God. It's contrasting the audacity that is required to overcome the reluctance that we might have in contrast to the willingness of God when we come to him. This is not primarily a parable about persistence, as it is an encouragement that God's people should pray because God is eager to respond. Jesus says that right at the beginning. He says, God, in this parable, is a friend. I'm talking about a friend. And so here are the contrasts between the human neighbor, who is our friend, and God, who is our friend. First of all, the contrast is that the human friends sleep, and they're unavailable at times. But there is no bad time to approach God. He does not sleep. Psalm 121.4 says, He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. You see, God is awake all the time and always ready to answer. So we don't need to worry that somehow we're going to catch God asleep or that he's not going to be ready and available for us. 
Secondly, human friends can be reluctant to help because it inconveniences them, but God does not have to overcome any reluctance. Psalm 86.5 says, O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. So there is no cost that God has not already paid to help you. The greatest price that God could pay, he paid with his son on the cross already. And so our requests do not inconvenience God at all. To interpret this parable as if God requires cajoling or God requires uh, you know, incentive to help his children isn't quite right, as we're going to see in verses 11 to 13. This is mainly a parable about God's willingness in contrast to a human friend to provide help, not that he is like a human friend and unwilling to provide help. So what Jesus teaches through those contrasts is that if a friend is right to be bold in approaching and asking his human neighbor, how much more boldly should we approach and ask God? If we're willing to go and wake up a neighbor who is asleep and who it inconveniences and who doesn't really want to help us, if that is still appropriate for us to do, then all the more so we should go to a God who is not inconvenienced, who is never asleep, who it doesn't cost anything that he has not already paid in order to hear us and to give us our needs. God is a far better friend. God is a more willing friend. He's a better resourced friend. And see this, the friend who is called upon is the friend who is honored. It is an honor to go to the friend who you know is going to come through for you. Why did the man in need go to his neighbor? Because he had confidence that if he went and asked, his neighbor would come through. He trusted the neighbor. And so Jesus is essentially asking in contrast, if we trust our earthly friends to help us, then how can we not honor God by going to him and trusting him to help us in our need? And trusting in his character above that of trusting our earthly friends. But how often do we go to earthly friends first and we trust them to help us before we trust God? We have to remember that it is honoring to God to come to him in prayer. It is honoring and glorifying to God to trust him. It glorifies him when he is trusted. Just as we talked last week, it is glorifying the mountain stream to drink and be satisfied in it. It is glorifying to God to come to him in prayer. And now Jesus drives that conclusion home twice, first in verse 9 and then in verse 10. This is how Jesus makes this point clear. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask and it will be given, seek and you shall find, knock and it will be answered. In other words, don't hesitate, come to God. Jesus says, seek, ask, seek, knock. So what do we ask for? In our private prayers, from Jesus' model prayer, he's told the disciples what the model is. He's told them these are the core things that you ask for. He says you ask for your daily bread. You ask for provision. You can ask for your sins to be forgiven. You can ask for the grace to forgive others. You can ask for protection from temptation and ask for protection from evil and of the world. Thomas Brooks makes a note here that this private prayer time is a daily prayer time because we need provision every day, and we sin every day, and we are sinned against every day, and we are tempted every day, and we face the evil of the world every day. And so Jesus teaches that we must pray every day. We 
Every day we need at least one time set aside for prayer. That's why it's one of the five ones. One gathering together for worship and one time for prayer because we need provision, we need grace, we need to offer grace, and we need protection every day. So in our daily prayers, as Jesus says, ask, 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 and it will be given. And we could pray daily then for things like Lakeside Church and its ministries to be provided with volunteers and resources and provided with opportunities for the gospel. We can pray daily for Halliburton that the families and the households up and down our streets would seek forgiveness and would offer forgiveness to others that they would resist temptation, that they would be protected from evil. We can pray daily for our families, and we can pray daily for ourselves in this same way. Now you may ask, Paul, if Jesus says, ask and it will be given, seek and I'll find, knock and it will be opened, does that mean I can pray for anything? Can I just name the thing I want and claim it in Jesus' name because Jesus says I can ask and God will give? Well, that may be a whole other sermon, but John Calvin has perhaps the best answer or illustration to this that I've ever read. In his commentary to the Philippians, Calvin reminds us that the Spirit must hold our affections in check and does so by the bridle of the Word of God. I'll just say that again. The Spirit has to hold our affections in check. And the Spirit does that with the bridle of the Word of God. So what that means is when we pray, we can confidently pray for those things that we know are in God's will because they are in God's word. Because otherwise, we will simply pray for the things that we desire, pray for the things that are our own fleshly affections. And God does not promise that we will get them. James says, you pray and you do not receive because you ask amiss. And so I love the way Calvin has said this. If it's in God's word, that's the bridle that keeps our own affections and our own desires in check so that we are praying in the will of God. So daily we could ask for God's work to be in us to be conformed and that we would be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 8.28. We could pray that we have opportunity and courage to make our lives be a living sacrifice to God. That's Romans 12.1. We can pray to increase our affections and our worship in John 4.23. We can pray that we would love mercy, Micah 6.8. We can pray for strength under trials, 1 Corinthians 10.13. We can pray for wisdom, James 1.5. All of these things are given to us in God's word as his will for us, and therefore what we can pray for. So there are those and scores of more things that are good and right things to ask for every day. Every day. It's no accident that Jesus calls it daily bread. And says we don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God in Matthew 4.4. But when asking God, please notice in our prayer life that God does not promise you good grades on your test. God does not promise the girl that you like will find you cool. God does not promise you a high paying job. God does not promise you security and safety in this life. In fact, often he promises the opposite. It doesn't mean we will never pray for those things. God does not desire that we are sick for no purpose, but God is also sovereignly redeeming a broken world that is not now as he intends it to be. And so we pray as a people in the midst of that redeeming work and understand that God is using all things sovereignly for our good, including the redeeming work that he is doing in our own lives that sometimes brings discipline and suffering. God will always give what is good for our eternal life. 
Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and God will answer. He will answer with what is good. And just in case the disciples still don't understand the teaching that follows this daily pattern of prayer, Jesus drives it home a second time in verses 11 to 13. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus really can't make the comparison by contrast any more plain at this point. We are comparing God to a grumpy neighbor friend. We are aware of God being willing to give and open doors if we ask and if we seek. And now he compares God to an earthly father. He says, do you see disciples? Do you understand followers? Do you get it, my children? You call some earthly father good because they wouldn't trick or harm their children. And so in contrast, how much better is it to have a heavenly father who really knows what is good for you? So sometimes you might ask for one thing and God gives you something else, but it's not a trick. It's for your good. Even earthly fathers know to give their children what is good, and our heavenly father knows even better. And so as we consider who we are as Christians and what things we do because we are Christian, as we consider the time that we're in, and as I said, the disengagement that we're feeling, and how to re-engage in our spiritual disciplines, how to re-engage in our relationship. This is the number one thing I would say to test. All the other things we might re-engage with for other motives, but private one-on-one time with God is only because we treasure him and only because we believe this promise. We can follow this pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us and we can take the parable that he's given his disciples and know that God doesn't need anything from us. He wants to give what we need. The five things that we can check our health on, this is the most telling. It generates both our highest and lowest scores. If you have daily, deep, private, and personal talks with God, and you are enjoying his affection and asking for more of his promises in your life, and you feel by energized by that, nothing else compares. Nothing else gives you as much strength as that to live and lead the Christian life. But if you have been far from God for days, if you've been far from God for weeks or maybe even months, maybe even years in this regard, and you can't remember the last time you've had really good communion with God, when you've pulled out your notebook and you've journaled and you've written out your prayers because they just flow from your lips and you want to write them down so that they take root in you, then this is the time to reflect on private, intimate time spent with God. And that can be a scary prospect. Like I said, there's lots of reasons that keep us apart from God. But God is that neighbor who wants, when you come to him, to help. He's better than any earthly father. He has paid every price and there is no inconvenience to him. He's never asleep. He wants you in his presence so that he can give you what you need. So don't be afraid. Jesus says, come to me daily re-engage and i understand the covid brain syndrome i feel it myself it has been hard there have been weeks when trust me it has been very difficult to read my bible it has been difficult to go to god in prayer there are weeks that have gone by when i've been ashamed that i haven't been able to spend the time in prayer for you guys that i wanted to but jesus knows this god remembers that we are dust Jesus knows every temptation that we have faced. And he says to his children, ask, seek, knock, 
I will answer. I'll provide what you need. I'll forgive your sin. I'll give you the grace to forgive others. I'll give you a way of escape and temptation. I'll protect you from evil. But I do it daily with you. You need to walk with me every day. Don't just walk with God once a week on Sunday. Don't just walk with God a couple of times a year when you feel like you're really in need and you finally turn to him. God says, walk with me every day. It's daily bread. It's daily grace. It's daily provision. Come ask and God will give his children good things. Of all the things we do as Christians, of all the things we need to be doing right now, prayer is the most personal, the most powerful, and the most telling indicator of where we are with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I just encourage you that despite COVID brain, despite disengagement, despite not being able to gather, despite everything seeming to put pressure on your prayer life, that this is the time that you would lean in. Lean into prayer. Lean in to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this parable of Jesus. Thank you that he puts it right after his pattern that he gives his disciple of prayer. And he says, this is how you pray and that's good, but let me tell you about who you're praying to. And he gives them basically three parables or three examples to say, you just got to keep praying because God is going to answer. He's not inconvenienced. He's not asleep. It's not that he lacks the resources. If you press in, he will ask, he will answer. And so Lord, help us to go to God, go to God in the word of God so that we can receive the blessing of that close communion with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.